Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. And if you don't, just read with me. So this is like Jesus left where, where as the church is kind of growing, God is moving in people's lives. The kingdom is appearing. The kingdom is expanding. Things are happening. Um, verse 5, it says this, but many of the Jews were, were motivated by bitter jealousy. And this is in regards to the spreading of uh, the, the kingdom of God. They're motivated by bitter jealousy and formed a large mob out of troublemakers. It's funny how the Jewish people are able to find troublemakers whenever they need them. Unsavory characters and street gains to entice a riot. They set out to attack Jason's house for he had welcomed the apostles into his home. The mob was after Paul and Silas and sought to take them by force and bring them out to the mob that they've gathered around. When they couldn't find them, they took Jason instead, along with some of the brothers in his house church, and dragged them before the city council. So they couldn't drag Paul and Silas in front of the mob, so they did the next best thing. He's like, well... Let's grab Jason, since he's, you know, an accomplice. And dragged him before the city council. Along the way, they screamed out. And this is kind of, this is why they were so furious and upset. And this is why all this was happening. Those troublemakers who have turned the world upside down have come here to our city. And now Jason and these men have welcomed them as guests. They're traitors to Caesar, teaching that there is another king named Jesus. I want to just um, pause there. Well, we, we can finish. Let's do verse 8. Just continue to tell. Their angry shouts stirred up the crowds and troubled the city and all its officials. Now, as I'm thinking about the kingdom and I'm thinking about how Jesus launched it, because what happened was the kingdom has always been in this world in some sort of format. But Jesus uh, wanted to establish, and like we talked about a few weeks ago, he wanted to take the kingdom that he originally set up in the Garden of Eden and kind of give it again to the people. And so what, when Jesus came to the earth, what he did is he, he um, initiated the kingdom of God. And so when you read through his life and through the early church, the, the thing that marks the early church was that they were proclaiming this good news of the kingdom of God. That's what they were doing. That's what they were persecuted, you know. And, and, and the result of them proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, was that things were happening. People were getting saved. People were getting healed. People were leaving their old way of doing things. And, 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 and as a result of that, cities were being transformed. Houses were being transformed. There was an evident of change in these people's lives. And it's not that these people just proclaimed the king that was so crazy. But it's that people actually took the, this proclam the proclamation, received it, and ran with it. And the result was that their life has been changed and marked. And so the religious people were all up in arms with all this change, because all of a sudden, there's this thing that's happening, and we cannot control them. Because you see, religion, 
This is why people hate religion. Like the, the, the religion of this day, is a, religion is used to control and manipulate people. It's, it's used to, to, to position people over other people, to, to dominate other people. And Jesus never, and God, when he created mankind, he never created mankind to dominate over each other. He said, man, you dominate over the earth. And so religion takes that and says, no, we are higher, we're closer to God, you know, and if you do this and this and this, you know, it like kind of like puts yokes. Jesus talked about, you know, you guys are teaching all this stuff, but you're putting all these yokes on all these people. And so Jesus, one of the things that he came to liberate people from is this concept and this whole idea of religious practices. Um, so it was really, really devastating. But, but as you're reading the, uh, the book of Acts and like the continuation of the story of the launch of the church, one of the things that you, that you connect, and there's not something that I've really connected, and, and the questions that I'm asking is this, is that the church that launched with the same message and the Christianity and the form of Christianity that we embrace and live out in our Western culture, specifically here in America, they're not the same. And the question is why? And so the first question is, is why? It's more like, it's like, okay, so, so what has changed? And if these apostles... If what shook the world were, was their message and the effect of their message, then the realistic question is, did the message change? Did the message change to where the effects are not the same? And I understand, and I'm not trying to say let's go back to the book of Acts, not at all. What I'm saying is the fundamental, the principles, the cause and effect of what Jesus, came to, what Jesus came to show and what he proclaimed and what the church picked up and carried, the message has not changed at all. And yet, there is this void of an effective Christian life. And the phrase that kind of like really, that I've been kind of like, it's been in my mind and just this thing that I just want to kind of throw out for you guys to think over and not just to kind of take it as information, but to kind of like personalize this. And this phrase is this, what shook and shifted the earth in the book of Acts has the same power and potential to shake and shift our world today. But do we believe it? If the message has not changed, and if the message was creating chaos and havoc in the early church, why is it that it has no effect or seemingly no effect today? Why is it that instead of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, we're, we're begging people to become Christians? 
And why is it in our own lives there's this lack of God's work in, in, in our midst? Like God will show up a little bit here and there, but, but, but why is it that if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the king, and if you agree with me that if Jesus was here in the flesh walking next to you, that you and I would look at life different, we would talk different, we would go to places or not go to certain places, we would act different, we would, and the biggest of it is not just our external, like, responses, but I think that we would filter everything to this. Jesus, what do you want to do? Jesus, what do you think? Like, Jesus would be our go-to point on everything. And if Jesus has not changed, and if the gospel of the kingdom has not changed, then it all falls on us to look in the mirror and say, hey, pretty boy, you and me got to have a meeting. You and I, mirror, mirror on the wall, have been doing things our way. The king's been sitting there waiting for us to chat with him. So this little duo thing is going to turn into a trinity. We're going to invite the king of kings into our life. But here's what we have done. And I think here's, here's kind of like the problem because we have been described a, and we've been taught a kingdom of God that's not the same kingdom of God that, is, that we read about in the book of Acts. Um, and there are basically two, there are two, I would almost say, incomplete or even false kingdoms that that we have prescribed to and we see lived out in a world which does not bring much effect. Because this world, like they need this good news of a king who loves, who cares for his people. They need hope and hope comes with the king. And so we are the carriers of that hope. So something has shifted in our life and we got to be like, okay, what's going on? So there's... Two gospels that I believe that, 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 that we are hearing about and that we're living out. And then there's the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I want to address these three. So the first one, you may, have, you may have heard this or not, but this is, I think, really, this prevails in our American churches, like, significantly. And this is like, people call this the hyper-grace gospel. The hyper-grace gospel is basically, basically says this. You are saved by grace... So it doesn't matter how you live. And have you ever bumped against people who say they're Christian and you're like, but your life does not reflect your belief? Have you ever been that Christian? A person who's all about hyper grace what the result of this is that believing in Jesus has little impact on a person's lifestyle. And we treat sin very lightly because we continue to live in sin. So we cannot be too hard on sin. And we say things like, don't judge me. 
Nobody's perfect. And we use those, those phrases to continue to justify our comfort zone. Because we, 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 we behave with no moral principle or even a sense of responsibility. And it becomes this like intellectual asset. And I think that this is where people become really comfortable in how they do life. This is why there's so many people who are living in a way that is destructive to their life. This is why people don't really, are not really excited about the kingdom or, or anything to do with God because they, they feel just like, you know, well, God loves me. And if God loves me and he died for me and I'm saved, then it doesn't really matter. This is just a, you know, a quick life. And so there is this big void in a relationship between them and God. And we justify it. We say, oh, God understands our life. God understands our sin. And a lot of times, even though those statements are true, God does understand. Nothing is a surprise to God. But the reality of it is that we just want to live the way we want to live. And no man or woman or God's going to tell us how to do things otherwise. And when we have that, when we don't really carry the same values that is talked about in Scripture, we make up our own value system. So we will treat one person this way, another person that way, and we actually become the center of our own universe. Because it doesn't really matter at the end. And so our lives have no influence and God is not showing up in our lives because we've just kind of left God in his place and we're just going to continue in our place and that is a false gospel that is not the gospel of grace that the apostles preached and that Jesus talked about that's one spectrum where it's like, Jesus saved me, so it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter. I'm going to sin, so I'm going to accept the fact that I'm a sinner, you know. And, 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 and so this is just, that's it, you know. And, there, and a lot of people will refer to, oh, you know, Paul wrote that there's a, there's a thorn in my thigh. And so, and then, then they attribute that to sin. My thorn is pornography, and it's just a thorn in my side. My thorn is lust. My thorn is lying. My, my thorn is self-promotion. My thorn, and then people just say, that's just my thorn. And they just divorce people. They remarry people who are married. They commit adultery. They do all these wicked things. And what happens is that we look at people's lives and we're like, I just don't get it. I don't get it. But the other side of the spectrum is the very religious legalists. And that's the camp that I came from. And this camp, they are about pleasing God. And they're, they're kind of, their phrase is that I am saved by grace, but I have to perform to stay saved by grace. So it goes completely on the other end. And even though these people, that's what I used to be, we took God seriously. Like, we pray. Like, like I remember, and I, and I shared this before, but 
But in our, in our family growing up, we would pray the Lord's Prayer every single night. And I was so determined to please God that I made sure that I prayed it um, in the morning and at night. And not only that, but I also was determined that, that um, our culture was that you started out with the Lord's Prayer and then you pray and then you ended with the Lord's Prayer. And so I made sure that I did it and, and, and I was, you know, kind of looking at my brothers and sisters and they weren't really saying it. They were falling asleep and I'm like, not me. I'm going to make sure that I say this prayer properly so that God can hear me. And so I know for me that I was taking God really, really seriously, but I fell, in, in, I, I fell under a lot of rules of man. And the rules and the yokes of men, it's, it's the idea of being a good Christian, which goes to this performance aspect. Like I got, I got to make sure that I got to go to church. I got to make sure that I pray. I cannot sin. And if I sin, I'm just going to be, God, please forgive me. Please have mercy on my soul. So I, I got to make my focus is like, I cannot sin, you know. And then what happens is that whenever I set up my own standards and rules and things that I've added to the gospel of the kingdom, then I actually take other people and say, why aren't you doing what I'm doing? Why aren't you reading the Bible like I'm reading the Bible? How many hours a day are you praying? Huh? How many times have you read the Bible? Huh? How many times do you go to church? Huh? And then what happens is when you're really legalistic and you set these, these rules, then you begin to judge other people because they are not living up to the rules that you made. And then you look at those people on the other side that are only grace, and you're like, oh, y'all are lost. And, and a lot of the thinking, too, is that sin basically you don't sin you're in heaven when you sin you leave and salvation is like this like you really don't know when you're saved or not and one of the things is this they would say so if Jesus came back if Jesus came back and you're in the movie theater do you think he's going to go to the movie theater to take you with him that's how I grew up so God forbid when you die you're doing the wrong performance and a lot of, actually, a lot of the religions of the world, they are in this camp, but not in a scriptural basis. They're in this camp because it's all about performance. It's all about making sure that God continues to love me, that God doesn't leave me because I just want to make sure I want to please God. And the way that I'm going to please God is I'm going to make sure that I'm doing all the right things and all the right things. And then whenever hell breaks loose, people say, what are you doing wrong? Why isn't God blessing you? There must be some secret sin in your life. There must be something in your life that you're not doing to appease God. And it is such a hard place to be. And what happens is when you're in the place, you lose love. And all you are about is truth, truth, truth. I'm going to say the truth no matter what. I'm going to say the truth no matter what. And on this side of, of, of grace where it's kind of like, we're just going to love people. We're just going to love people. I don't worry about the truth, but we're just going to love them, love them into the kingdom, you know. And it's like it's, it's, these two things are so demonic and they don't produce people who want to be like you. Because... Nobody wants to have a friend who's two-faced. Nobody wants to have a person who's telling you one thing and does another. No one wants to have a person who's, who's living a certain life and they're wanting you to do it. And if you don't do it, now you've upset them. And this, this legalistic is like very black and white. And the grace is just all gray. And it's like, well, you think it's sin? Yeah, but what does the Greek say? What does that mean in the Greek? And I'm telling you, and I remember when we were growing up, we would actually debate. We'd go to people's houses and debate this 
gospel with people. That is a hard life to live. Jesus is not inviting us into that kind of kingdom. I just want to just a couple things um, just to, to finish that thought. Basically, the gospel of the legalist is that God is holy. He has made his demands really clear. We must warn, exhort, rebuke, admonish ourselves. And try to persuade and not even persuade, but force people to live up to them. Now, and those are the two completely opposites. And they are various degrees. So it's not like... One side is just like so, so bad. But there's various, you know, there's like very mild to very extreme on both ends. Now what the gospel that Jesus came is the gospel that we just read in Acts. And it's like this. It's like somebody's coming. And these people, we heard about these people. And when these people come, they're going to do the same thing that they've done in other cities. They're going to come here. They're going to turn this world upside down. And what they're saying is this, that we're selling idols. We're living how we want to live. We are doing all these things. And these people are going to come with this message of the kingdom of God. And it's going to cause people to change the way they do living. And the the good news and why this was not just a feel-good message and this is why a lot of people in the in the in the in the book of acts and in the early church died because of the decision to follow a king that's not caesar to jesus when he came and his language of the kingdom and the king was not just vague mysterious It was a for real, I'm going to come in here, I'm going to set up my kingdom because I am the king. I'm going to set up my kingdom and then I'm going to invite people into my kingdom. And this is why Pilate was saying, hey, so you are a king? And Jesus is like, yes, but I'm not the king of this world. The source of my kingship did not originate from earth. He's basically saying, you were king because you were born into it, and it's all from this earth. My kingdom, my kingship came from heaven. But it's not of this world. Because if it was, he, was, he, he, he told him that my servants would come and fight for me. And it put Pilate in such an interesting way where he's like, this guy's crazy. This guy's crazy. He's Says he, has a, he says he's a king, but he doesn't really have a kingdom from here. He doesn't have anybody to fight him because, see, whenever a king got taken or because you wouldn't really arrest the king. I mean, when you mess with the king, you mess with the whole kingdom. Like, it's war. It was a severe, severe thing. And so Jesus preached this kingdom of him being king over people's lives. But... What was this, what, the craziness of this message was, and, and what was proclaimed in the early church, was that you have pledged your allegiance to Caesar. Caesar is king. Caesar is lord. You subject yourself to his reign, to his rulership. He is the man. And there was so much injustice. There was so much 
poverty because none of the kings were great kings. The only king that was considered to be a great king in scripture specifically, there's a few other ones, but the one that really stands out is a King David. So to become part of this kingdom, to enter into this kingdom, there was something that people actually had to do and part of believing in Jesus for salvation. But to enter into the kingdom, it was like, it was like the Bible says that you have to enter it. It's here, but it's not here. It's present, but it's also future. So it's not like stationary where you just step into the stationary place. This kingdom that God is talking about is the kingdom where two things happen. It is complete freedom and allegiance to Jesus having complete lordship over our lives. There's this author who defines the kingdom of God in this way just to give it some context. But it's very fluid so you're not just like, oh, here, here's what it is. Because there's a reason why Jesus... And the apostles, they never really defined it. They just described it. They just illustrated it. The kingdom of God is like a sower. The kingdom of God is like the lady. The kingdom of God is like this. You know, and, they, and there's like, like 80, what, 8 or 89 unique references to the kingdom in the New Testament. And there's not a complete definition. So, so the kind of illustration, if you want to picture what the, the invitation was, was this. You are doing your life. And the invitation to come into the kingdom of God and, and to declare that Jesus is king, this is what you're inviting, this is what God is inviting you into. And which is this. The kingdom of God shows up when the manifestation of God's ruling presence. The kingdom of God shows up where there is a manifestation of God's ruling presence presence and in simplicity what this does and I love this because this kind of takes these two aspects of of, of like false gospels and it does do it, it does, does two things the, the kingdom of God is about the lordship of Christ and it's about freedom in the spirit so Jesus comes and sets us free from trying to do good because God will never love you more God will never love you less but he also sets us free from practicing evil things as well so there's freedom under the reigning and the ruling of Jesus. Basically, Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's not just your savior. He saves you from your sin and he gives you eternal life. And now the kingdom of God arrives when you and I have submitted ourselves to the king who is Jesus. And so this the kingdom of the, of the gospel is not just about trying to get someone to just say, once you're saved, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect your life. And it also doesn't mean that there's a lot of this burden and this yoke where you're like, I got saved. That's it. My life is changing and, and I'm going to become a monk. I'm going to make sure that, that, uh, you know, that everybody knows the truth and all this stuff. And it's not like that there's freedom. It actually brings liberty, not a yoke of bondage. But it's not just liberty to do whatever, but it's also liberty not to do whatever. Because people who do whatever they want to do, it just shows that they don't have self-control. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is to have self-control. Which is about not compromising. It's about not compromising. So this provides freedom from fruitless attempts to keep our moral standard. And I love this because this is the message that rocks people. Because they're like, oh, so you can do whatever you want? No. Oh, so you're in bondage and you got to do certain things? No. No, what, what's going on? It's like, you don't understand. 
I am as free as I've ever been because just because I can do whatever I want, it doesn't mean I have freedom. It actually illustrates that I'm in bondage because the reality is that I don't do what I want. I do what my body tells me to do, what my chemicals tell me to do, and I'm wanting out, but I can't. I'm bound. But what happens when you submit yourself to the king of kings, and I think this is what really changes everything, his presence ascends. The spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, comes alive and things begin to happen. You get joy, you get peace, you know you're in right standing with, with, before God. And all of a sudden, you are in partnership with something that's beyond this world. Now you're living for something that's beyond what you can see with your eye. Now you've tapped into something that people cannot explain. But whenever they experience, it's like, oh my goodness, that is so fantastic. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like love. That unless you've been in love, you don't fully, you can't really explain it. You can't really define it. It's like, it's like the best definition of love is that when you fall in love, you'll know what it is. And to an extent, it's true with the King of Kings. When you have submitted your life to the King of Kings, he shows up and all you know that you know that he's there. And you know, and you can go anywhere, you can do anything, you can rely on anyone, and people look at you like, what is going on? But then they see that what you do, it impacts people around them. Because all of a sudden, your life is different. You don't live a life that's full of compromise. You are gentle, you are meek, you stand your ground, you speak the truth, you love the unlovable, you forgive the, the person who has wronged you, you forgive and you love your enemy. And all this stuff is contrary to what a lot of people know as to be real life. And we cannot do this on our own. Jesus has come in and really do that within our life. And so when you read through the Gospels, Paul writes about all these things. This is whenever the letters to the churches, because the churches are having issues, you know, things are happening. Corinth, Galatia. Um, um, Ephesus, they're having all these issues. And if you read through them, you can see there's like this pattern of how he brings them back to what's really important. Instead of saying, oh, you can do whatever you want to do, you're under grace. Or, I cannot believe it, you guys got to, you know, make sure that you pray more. No, he does these three things and I want to kind of end, end with this. And we're going to pray. Because when the kingdom of God shows up in your life, what the king does first and foremost is he reminds you of who you really are. Your true identity. And whenever the king reminds you of who you really are, you realize that you have value. You realize that you have purpose. You realize that no matter what's happening, that you are loved. You realize that God has a plan for your life. You realize that what you do is not necessarily who you are. And God is just taking this thing of who he created you originally to be. To be and he breathes life into who you are, into your identity. And what's interesting, because we're so warped on our gospels, the thing that the biggest battle culturally right now is people's identity. First, it's a mental identity, identity of where we've come from. And then this confusion of physical identity, of who we are and, and how we were born and all this other stuff. 
I don't think it's a, it's a big surprise that, that we're being attacked in this way because I think that the church has lost its identity. Who you are really because when you know who you are, it guides you. What you do, what you say. It is like the, the lamp onto your feet so that whenever you walk, it lights your path. So when you read through them, you'll see this pattern. Paul reminds people of this is who you are in Christ. Jesus has made you brand new. Why are you going back to what you have been freed from? That's not who you are. That's not who you are. He, it, this is like the voice of God reminding you among all these other voices in our culture that are feeding you lies. You're too skinny. You're too fat. You're this. You're this. You're that. Be like this. Be like that. Be like that. And God's like, no, no. You are my beloved. You are my priest. You are royalty. You are my creation. I've knit you and woven you before you were ever born. While you were still in your mother's womb, I was forming you. My hands were, was on the fetus. Second thing he does is that he describes the behavior of those who are the new creation in Christ. So this is where we get like, you know, you used to do this eye for an eye and that thing, but now that you're a new creation, now you don't do that anymore. You, you love instead. You used to lose your patience, but now you're working out your self-control. You used to do all these other things, but now because you're a new creation, that's not part of who you are. That's not your life. That's not at all. So you have to back away from what you used to be. I think it's really empowering to be able to, to realize that, wow, God, I'm not who I believed that I was, the lies that I believed. This is how I ought to behave. And then once you get a picture of, of this is who you are and you in Christ, this is why the Bible is full of all these references, all these promises that God talks about you and I. You are, you are my beloved. You are new. And the third thing that he does, he, he urges and encourages, inspires them to walk in line with who they are in Christ rather than who, you, who they used to be. And because the Spirit of God lives within us, the Spirit of God empowers us to live according to our identity, to our real identity. And so, before we can be used by God to shake the world around us, God has to shake us. God has to show up in our lives first and, for, and foremost. You know the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I'd like you guys to do right now is, is pray this prayer. Pray that phrase. I, will, I want everyone to just close your eyes. Pray this prayer, but pray like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life as it is in heaven let me pray this say this again and you guys can repeat it your kingdom come your will be done in my life in my life now just close your eyes and just speak this out say God just do a work in me shake off all those things in my life that's not, that's not grounded or rooted in you.
become real in my life. Become the king and the Lord over my life, over my situation, over my job. Become real in my life. Just invite Jesus into your life right now. All the heads are bowed. Just in your own words.